Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of most of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, George Elser's bomb plot to kill Adolf Hitler. Let's begin part two of our story about George Elser. George Elser arrived in Munich on August 4, 1939, to implement the final stage of his mission. He rented a very pleasant room near the Marianneplatz. It turned out to be both too pleasant and unsuitable for any kind of work on his project, and much more expensive than he could afford. He quickly found a succession of cheaper options that were so small that he could barely get his luggage and his secret suitcase inside. He explained his absence at night by claiming he was taking a master woodworking class and was working on an invention. He slept all day, his nocturnal habits indicating to all of his landlords that he certainly was an odd but harmless duck. Elser's most misleading quality was his seeming lack of any sort of guile or pretense. A little off, maybe, but this slight, modest man couldn't possibly be up to anything nefarious. By the 9th of August, George Elser worked out his plan for the excavation of the column in the Burgerbrau Keller's meeting hall. Except for special events, the room was typically empty, but remained unlocked, and frequently individuals used it as a shortcut to the street behind the massive beer cellar. By now, Elser was a regular who took his meals in the smaller brewery restaurant area and knew the routine when the restaurant closed. He sat at the same table every night and ordered a meal. One thing immediately distinguished Elser. He only ordered one beer, frequently not even finishing it. He paid for his meal around 10 and then walked casually through the doors of the meeting hall. He made sure that no one was present before climbing up to the second floor gallery storage space and shutting the door behind him. His closet contained nothing but cardboard boxes and a chair. George would settle in until he heard the doors to the hall being locked between 10.30 and 11.30, a loud and distinct sound. Only then would he emerge, quietly waiting for a few moments to make sure no one else was present, even accidentally. He made his way to the base of the column on the second floor gallery and got to work. His project would be handled in stages, because the first stage involved removing the wooden paneling that surrounded the brick column. Elser was quite comfortable with the meticulously removing the molding and making saw cuts in the wood that were not visible while his compartment was under construction. It took him three nights to build a door that would seal the compartment off during the day. He added hinges that could not be seen and a small bolt that could only be opened with a tiny blade. Much more difficult was removing the cement and bricks that made up the pillar itself. Elser improvised with a hand drill and various types of bits. He painstakingly drilled hole after hole in the bricks until the masonry crumbled bit by bit. 
it would take Elser many days to complete this part of the process. He had only a limited amount of time each night. The meeting hall would be opened between 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning, and Elser must be safely concealed in his hiding place by then. Even when he heard the doors being unlocked, he waited so that he merely looked like someone making their way casually through the now-open beer cellar. Throughout the process that took months, Elser will only have one potentially dangerous moment. One morning in August, early in the process, a worker came up to the storage closet to retrieve a box. He noticed Elser there but didn't say anything. George immediately knew he had to do something, and thinking quickly, he went into the restaurant and sat down at a table, acting quite nonchalant. When a manager accompanied by the worker confronted him and asked what he was doing in the closet, he meekly replied that he was attending to a boil on his thigh and wanted some privacy. Well, what about the washroom? Elser didn't like the lack of privacy there either. The manager told him sternly to stay out of the storage room in the future, but then started to recognize Elser as a regular and became friendlier. On September 1st, the eventuality that George Elser dreaded became a reality when Germany invaded Poland. As most of the country patriotically cheered German advances and believed Nazi propaganda about initial attacks by Poland and latent threats from England and France, Elser continued his work on the compartment with renewed intensity. He became more convinced that the only way to save Germany from utter ruin was the success of his plot. Military blackouts meant that the beer hall would not even have any emergency lights on after hours. Elser adapted a flashlight covered with a cloth to conceal the light as best as possible. When he encountered substances too difficult to drill manually, Elser employed a hammer and chisel. But the noise from such an effort reverberated loudly around the hall. Elser took to waiting for the 10-minute automatic flushing of all the toilets in the Burgerbrow Keller to obscure the sound of metal against masonry. Because he wanted his compartment to be as imperceptible as possible, he knelt as low as he could on the floor of the gallery, quickly rubbing his knees raw with infected sores. He soldiered on, sleeping during the day and acquiring other spare parts for his invention in the afternoon, going to the Burgerbrow Keller every night. He would meticulously sweep any debris he removed from the column, carefully placing it into a cloth sack and dumping it in a bin on his way home. The compartment was progressing. But just what kind of device was Elser constructing to place inside of it? He knew that he would need a time device involving the mechanisms of a modified clock. The key to Elser's device was a spring-loaded block of iron with three nails attached that would be released at the appropriate time. The nails would strike the rifle shells, which would ignite the blasting caps, which would detonate the dynamite. Elser employed a battery to power his clock, which had additional added gears and a specially designed wooden cog that would be moved by the clock's hour hand in small increments. This incredibly complex design would ultimately employ a lever and wire to release the spring. Elser had also meticulously built a small wooden cabinet to hold the device. He could not and would not be able to fully test his bomb for obvious reasons. He did plan on a second backup mechanism in the event the first bomb failed and would rely on his own ingenuity to see the project through. He would spend much of October interacting with various local craftsmen, carpenters, locksmiths, and mechanics. A woodworker named Brog allowed him to use his workshop after Elser helped him build furniture without payment. On November 1st, when Elser vacated his rental, he would stay there. The speech was less than a week away. The compartment had been hollowed enough to allow George to pack it with explosives. 
On November 4th, when he tried to insert his clock bomb into the small chamber, it wouldn't fit. He filed down the edges of the cabinet, but had to wait until the night of November 5th. The device now fit snugly. He primed the wiring and spring mechanism, set the clocks, and was done. Elser also lined the interior of the compartment with cork so that the ticking of the clocks was not audible externally. He also put a sheet of metal behind the small door to prevent anyone from accidentally driving a nail in the column and discovering the hollow space. George Elser had truly thought of everything. Relieved, George would spend the next few days saying his goodbyes to a few relatives and friends. He visited his sister Maria and her husband and son in Stuttgart and also left his tools and many of his belongings, including several clock mechanisms, behind, a gesture that would have grave consequences for them. He indicated that he would need to go to Switzerland. They didn't ask why. George stayed overnight and then left. Although he initially had no intention to do so, his perfectionism got the better of him. He went back to Munich to check his clocks again. The night of November 7th found him walking toward the Burgerbrau Keller one last time. He had no idea that his plan at that moment was completely compromised. The Nazi Party newspaper had suddenly announced that the traditional celebration for the Alterkampfers had been radically changed. The speech, typically given by Hitler, would now be given by Rudolf Hess and shortened. The November 9th parade would be canceled entirely. No explanation was given, but the faithful could only assume that wartime had diminished the need for sentimental celebration. As George Elser made his way to the beer hall, he and many other individuals of the city were unaware of the change because they only read a local paper, if at all. Outside the Burgerbrau Keller, posters still proclaimed that Hitler would be in attendance on November 8th. George Elser checked his bomb again on the night of November 7th. The clocks were both right on time the plan proceeding right on schedule. There was no additional security in the hall yet. That was the result of the Nazi hierarchy assigning this matter to a local party boss, an incompetent who did not have the zeal and skill of the national apparatus. Still, on such a sentimental evening for the faithful, it was felt that nothing could possibly go wrong. The Fuhrer was with his most ardent supporters. No one could hurt him even if they wanted to. Hundreds of men would gladly take a bullet to save him. By morning, George Elser emerged from his closet and made his way into the street for the last time. He went to the station and boarded a train to begin the long all-day process that would take him to Constance, the Swiss border, and freedom. In his pockets, he carried small metal components of his bomb-making and a postcard of the Burgerbrau Keller. He hoped to be able to convince the Swiss that he was the man who blew up Hitler, and he certainly should be granted asylum rather than deportation back to Germany. Hitler did not want to go to Munich on November 8th. He did initially tab Hess to take his place. His hesitance was due to a stunning development. The Fuhrer was planning to launch an attack on the West on November 12th. Despite his general's advice that such an attack should be postponed until the spring, he was tired of the lack of action and phony war. He wanted the inevitable conflict to begin as soon as possible. But then, as was typical, Hitler changed his mind. He would fly to Munich, after all, and deliver his speech. The parade would be scrapped so that he could get back to Berlin, but the solemn occasion would be honored with the physical presence of the Fuhrer. By six o'clock, the beer-swilling old fighters were enthusiastically anticipating his arrival. They would have plenty of time to drink in preparation for the two-hour speech that would begin at 8.30, the exact time in 1923 that Hitler fired a shot into the beer cellar ceiling and proclaimed that the revolution had begun. 
It was with some surprise that Hitler was greeted when he entered the hall at 8 p.m. He was early, but his traditional two-hour speech would last well into the evening and at least until 10 o'clock. Before Hitler headed to the lectern, a large Nazi flag is paraded in front of him. This is the Blutfahne, or blood flag, a blood-splattered relic supposedly stained by the martyrs who were shot down in 1923. It has and will appear at any Nazi event of any significance until its mysterious disappearance late in 1944. Goering and Himmler are absent, but Goebbels, Heydrich, Hess, and many others follow Hitler towards the speaker's platform and sit in his proximity, near the flag festoon column directly in front of the podium. Inside the pillar, the gears of George Eller's device are operating right on schedule. The first clock is set to detonate at 9.20, less than 80 minutes away. George Elser got to Constance at a little after 8 p.m. as well. He knew the route to the border, and he anticipated the same lack of security that he observed less than six months earlier. Some have maintained that Elser, having completed the much more mentally arduous task of constructing and placing the bomb, was now in a much less heightened state of awareness. Perhaps he was merely exhausted after months of incredible tension. Whatever the explanation, he merely put one foot in front of the other and, without any hesitation or stealth, headed directly for the five-foot-high barbed-wire-covered fence. Unfortunately, two armed border patrol officials, an additional precaution now that the war had been declared, were literally walking up and down the street no more than 40 feet from where Elser was rapidly approaching the fence. They immediately shouted to him to halt. The senior of the two guards, a man named Xavier Rieger, moved briskly towards Elser, carbine ready, but when he determined that Elser was not about to resist or attempt to flee, he attempted to defuse the situation by nonchalantly asking Elser where he was going. George claimed that he was lost and confused and said he was searching for an acquaintance that he had known several years earlier. Rieger suggested that they go and meet with an official who knew Constance better than he did. George complied. As they walked back past Rieger's patrol partner, Rieger ordered him to stay put and keep an eye out for anyone else who might be trying to flee as well. Once Rieger got him to the nearest customs office, he firmly asked him to go inside. At that point, Elser was taken into a room where Rieger and the customs inspector on duty began to search him. The process quickly turned up an envelope with notes and diagrams of grenades and fuses, parts of a blasting cap, the postcard of the Burgerbrow Keller, and wire cutters. Once these items were recovered, the customs official's next step was clear, a call to summon the Gestapo. Elser was detained at about 8.40 p.m., according to Rieger's official report. By the time he had been searched, it had to be close to or even after 9.20. Although he would have been greatly apprehensive, even frightened over his current predicament, one wonders if he was able to see a clock anywhere and know exactly when this crucial moment arrived. To not know what was happening in the Burgerbrow Keller must have been agonizing. At precisely 9.20, the first of George Elser's clocks activated perfectly. The bomb detonated with a tremendous blast that pulverized the speaker's platform, shattered the pillar behind it, and brought the roof of the building down upon its inhabitants. Dust and debris filled the air, the room now shrouded in darkness with beams falling and screams for help. Seven people were killed immediately. One would die later at the hospital, but Adolf Hitler was not one of them, because weather forecasts had predicted heavy fog that would preclude a night flight back to Berlin and also force the cancellation of the Western invasion ultimately until the spring. A special train had been prepared for Hitler that was scheduled to leave Munich at 9.30.
To make the train, the Fuhrer cut off his speech and left the hall abruptly at 9.07. He was not only not in the Burgerbrau Keller when the bomb exploded, he would not even hear of it until the train got to Nuremberg. His immediate comment was, a man has to be lucky. Observers said that the explosion not only obliterated the podium area, but that a giant red flame erupted out of the gallery base of the pillar, only a few feet from Hitler's former location. He would have certainly been killed instantly, and many of his entourage with him. The consequences of these 13 minutes are inconceivable. Surprisingly, it took a while for anyone to connect George Elser with the bombing, but he was eventually brought to Munich. Himmler was placed in charge of the investigation, and he quickly delegated authority to his immediate subordinates. By November 12th, several employees of the Burgerbrau Keller, including the manager who had confronted him in the storage closet incident, positively identified him as a habitual customer. This was enough to bring on what could be termed enhanced interrogations, essentially savage beatings that left him moaning and bloody, according to one eyewitness. Stuttgart Gestapo officers would also descend on Konigsbrunn and quickly talk to the daughter of one of Elser's benefactors who let him live in their home in exchange for carpentry. She told of George showing her pictures of the Burgerbrau Keller and his funny wooden suitcase with the false bottoms and his work at the quarry with dynamite. This must have arched a few Gestapo eyebrows in Munich and intensified the physical thrashing typical when a suspect needs to make a confession. Elser was eventually taken to Gestapo headquarters in Berlin. Over a hundred people were questioned in Konigsbrunn alone. All of George's relatives were detained and taken eventually to Berlin, where they were confined to single rooms in a hotel. George's sister was in the most serious trouble because of the bomb-related materials he left behind. George's girlfriend and even the quarry owner where the dynamite came from were arrested. In Berlin, four individuals were confronted with George face-to-face, his mother, his sister and her husband, and his girlfriend Elsa were all brought in to hear George admit that he had built and detonated the bomb and to be asked themselves what they knew about the plot. Elsa's face was still swollen from beatings he had received during his interrogations. In front of his girlfriend, Elsa was slapped and humiliated, but he said nothing of note. It was an experience she would remember for the rest of her life. Ultimately, most of the Elsa entourage were released and allowed to return home. Maria, George's sister, and her husband were not released until February 20th, 1940. They were shunned in their hometown, and she would ultimately suffer a nervous breakdown. Elser would remain in the dreaded Gestapo headquarters of Prinz Albrechtstrasse. Hitler could not believe that such a simple man could be solely responsible for such an intricate plot. It was important that Elser confess completely and the connection to foreign threats like England be trumpeted to the German people. If this could not be proven, then such a connection would be manufactured. As early as November 9th, German intelligence put in motion a plan to turn the Burgerbrau Keller bombing into a propaganda bonanza, again motivating a wary German population into a national hatred of the West, especially England. In the small Dutch town of Venlo, two British agents were lured to a cafe near the German border. These agents were then kidnapped and spirited into Germany. Germany would have many motives to have carried out this operation, but suddenly these two agents could be presented as proof of a British plot to kill Hitler, in conjunction with Elser. Hitler also could use this incident as proof that the Netherlands had violated its neutrality and justify his invasion in May 1940, but that was down the road. For now, the German press railed about British intelligence responsibility for the Burgerbrau Keller bombing. The Gestapo would keep Elser in their headquarters until sometime in early 1941. 
During this time period, he would provide an intricately detailed explanation of all of his activity and even be given a small workshop to replicate his explosive device. All of this to really determine if, in fact, this inconsequential person could have carried out this remarkable operation. Finally, in 1941, figuring that they had squeezed everything they could out of Elser, they transferred him to nearby Sachsenhausen concentration camp. He was placed in the VIP unit with other prominent prisoners, including the two British agents. It was Hitler's intent after the conquest of England to stage a massive propaganda trial, with these three as the masterminds of a British-controlled plot to kill the Fuhrer. But that would have to wait. In the meantime, Elser would be kept in relative comfort compared to most of the other prisoners, his cell larger than most, his door open during the day. He could play his zither and even work at a small workshop in his cell. However, he was completely isolated from other prisoners. For the next four years, Elser remained at Sachsenhausen. He spent his time with woodworking and played his zither. He kept a photo of his former girlfriend, Elsa, in his cell. Finally, in 1945, it was clear even to the fanatic inner circle that the Elser show trial would never occur. George was transferred to another special prisoner's unit in Dachau. Observers there later said by that time he was an emaciated physical wreck. He would frequently tell his guards that he knew he was a dead man, that he would be killed soon. His instincts proved correct. While Hitler's physical and mental condition had deteriorated, he would spend much of the last weeks of the war personally evening scores with many people, especially those who plotted directly against him. On April 5th, an order was received in Dachau from Berlin, directed to the camp commandant. In cryptic language, it referred to a prisoner named Eller, ordered his execution, and suggested that it be made to look as if the prisoner was killed in an air raid. The prisoner Eller was actually George Elser. On April 9th, an SS officer came to Elser's cell and ordered him to prepare for an interrogation. Elser was confused. He had not been formally interrogated for many years. Now so close to the end of the war, what questions could he possibly answer? He walked out of his cell, escorted by another SS man, who led Elser in a general direction that might hopefully end at the camp entrance. But suddenly the guard directed Elser along the path that led to the crematorium in the rear of the camp. Elser knew then that the end had come. Exactly what happened next is not known. At some point, as he walked in the pitch-black darkness toward the crematorium, an SS officer named Theodore Bongartz, who commanded the eight-man work detail in this building, emerged suddenly. Members of the work detail, who had been told to stay inside the crematorium, heard two pistol shots in rapid succession. Two members of the work detail were summoned and told to bring a stretcher. They fetched a dead body from along the pathway. A slight five-foot-six-inch man shot through the back of the head and placed it in the morgue. It was cremated the next day. It was George Elser. Bongartz would be dead in a little more than a month, officially of tuberculosis, although because of his severe alcoholism, it probably could have been cirrhosis. The two British agents would be evacuated from Dachau, but after a circuitous march with their SS captors, they were ultimately liberated. Martin Niemöller, another concentration camp prisoner who had observed George Elser at Sachsenhausen, also survived. Niemöller especially would start the rumor that Elser was actually an SS accomplice in the bomb plot to drum up hysteria over England. If this was not so, why hadn't the Nazis executed him immediately? For many years, when Elser's name came up, it was met with skepticism, if it came up at all. In post-war Germany, even the July 20th plotters were initially scorned as traitors. Elser fell into a similar bucket. 
Over time, this attitude began to change. There was a great deal of journalism as well as a play in the 70s. By 1989, Klaus Maria Brandauer would make a film about Elser. Memorials would be placed, including one in Constance, where Elser was apprehended. The Burgerbrau Keller was finally demolished in 1979. Ten years later, a plaque would be installed at the site of the pillar where Elser's bomb was detonated. A small square was named after Elser near the home in Munich, where he stayed briefly before the attack. In 2011, official recognition of Elser as a national hero was evidenced by the dedication of a 55-foot steel profile sculpture installed on the Wilhelmstrasse in Berlin. Elser never set foot in the German capital, but today any pedestrian who passes by his memorial will have to pause and reflect on the remarkable determination and sacrifice of a simple man who only wanted to save his country. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about George Elser. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Bombing Hitler by Helmut Hassis and The Lone Assassin by Helmut Ortner. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>